Russia has defeated dozens of Ukrainian anti-tank missiles with its tanks in a three-week battle. Despite inflicting terrible losses with their armored vehicles on Ukraine's stockpile of anti-tank missiles, Russia has lost the largest tank battle of its failed invasion of Ukraine. Just 40 miles southeast of the city of Donetsk, the town of Voledar has become a killing ground for Russian tanks. It's here that the largest tank battle of the entire war took place over the course of three weeks, with Russia suffering catastrophic losses. An estimated 130 tanks and armored vehicles have been destroyed, causing such a massive shortfall of equipment that Russia has been forced to rely on infantry assaults against stubborn Ukrainian defenders. The loss has hit both the Russian military and civilian population particularly hard. Tank warfare is mythologized to truly legendary proportions by the Russian people. This worship of the mighty machines and the devastation they unleash spurred on by the Second World War. In massive battles of truly apocalyptic scale, hordes of T-34s took on German panzers, ironically on the same Ukrainian fields that Russia is now committing almost daily atrocities in. The tank is seen as a symbol of Russia, strong, tough, and unstoppable. Same way that Americans idolize their state-of-the-art aircraft, Russians love their tanks, which makes this loss particularly devastating. But this tank battle has shown that Russia's military has some serious problems that can't be fixed anytime soon and could spell ultimate disaster. For three grinding weeks, Russia hurled column after column of armor against Ukrainian defenses. Each time, they were beaten back. What might make the loss even more humiliating is that Russia was committing some of its best remaining tanks to the fight, while the Ukrainians were fighting back with tanks as old as the T-64. There was no chance Ukrainian defenders could possibly take on Russian armor with their own tanks, so instead they shaped the battlefield and applied the same lessons learned in beating the Russians back from Kyiv. The Russians, however, apparently learned nothing from their humiliating defeat last spring. The terrain around Volidar is not particularly favorable to the defender, mostly made up of wide-open plains with sporadic woods. The Ukrainian military was hard-pressed to enact an effective defense, but Ukrainians have learned to do one thing that the Russians haven't yet. They've learned to fight combined arms warfare. While they might not be as proficient nor have the same capabilities as a Western military in modern combined arms doctrine, Ukraine is daily proving that its military is clever, adaptable, and a quick study. The key to victory for the Battle of Volodar would be forcing the Russians to fight on Ukraine's terms. That meant shaping the battlefield by forcing the Russians to attack where Ukraine wanted them to attack. To achieve this, the UAF dispersed hundreds of anti-tank mines in the fields outside of Volodar, peppered with a healthy dose of anti-personnel mines to discourage any would-be minesweepers. With mostly flat terrain and huge fields of view, though, any Russian unit stupid enough to try to demine an area would immediately come under artillery fire. But the Ukrainians didn't mine everything. Instead, they just left clear corridors wide open to the Russians and free of mines. These corridors were just big enough for two or three tanks to travel side by side, but no more. Straying from the cleared path would mean death for a Russian tank. Even if the mine didn't destroy the vehicle entirely, it would damage or destroy the treads. At that point, the tank would become a sitting duck for Ukrainian artillery. You don't have to be Sun Tzu to know that the last thing you want to do is to attack where your enemy wants you to attack. And yet, acting in a way that can only be described as aggressively stupid, Russian commanders ordered their tanks into battle along these unmined paths. What happened next is surprising literally no one, except perhaps the Russians who repeated their mistake over and over and over again. The Ukrainians employed the exact same ambush tactics they unleashed on the Russians at the start of the war, and bizarrely, the Russians have apparently not adapted to them or learned from them in any way. If anything, though, Ukraine was now laying these ambushes even better than before thanks to a year of combat experience. 
First hunter-killer teams of infantry armed with American javelins and Ukrainian Stugna anti-tank missiles were dispersed on either side of the killing field. Because anti-tank mines are designed to only be detonated by the massive weight of an armored vehicle, Ukrainian ambushers could tread through rich minefields without fear, digging themselves into holes or hiding under bushes. Each anti-tank team could fire several anti-tank missiles before retreating. Of the two weapons used here, the Stugna and the Javelin, the Javelin is by far the deadliest threat to an enemy tank. This American-made anti-tank missile has proven its worth in spades and is the number one killer of Russian armor in existence. The Javelin has a range of 4,000 meters and features a fire-and-forget feature, which allows its operator to flee to safety immediately after launching. The missile itself is ejected from the launcher before its main rocket is ignited, making it even more difficult to spot the location of the operator. Once in flight, a Javelin locks onto the infrared signature of its target as designated by the operator and flies into either a top attack mode or direct attack mode. Most effective in top attack mode, the Javelin explodes directly over the thin top armor of an enemy tank. Its tandem warhead charge allows it to use the initial smaller blast to knock away explosive reactive armor and incoming interceptors, while the second blast creates a stream of super plastically deformed metal, in effect turning the Javelin into a sci-fi particle beam cannon that penetrates hundreds of millimeters of tank armor. The Stugna missile is less advanced than the Javelin but can still be incredibly deadly. Ukrainian developed, the Stugna can take out the best tanks Russia can put out in the field, and also utilized a tandem warhead to defeat ERA and up to 800 millimeters of armor. Unlike the Javelin though, the Stugna is a dumb missile and needs an operator to keep the target in the crosshairs of the launch unit. This lets the Stugna effectively ride a laser beam directly to the target in question. Armed with both AGM variants, Ukrainian hunter-killer teams posed a deadly threat to Russian armor. But that's not the only surprise the Ukrainians had waiting for Russian tanks outside Volodar. Ukraine fielded its own tanks as well, but operated largely older tanks than those fielded by Russia, needing to be careful about their deployment. Ukrainian tanks were thus dug into their own defensive positions or hidden under camouflage nets. Some tanks were even buried deep into the soil in reverse slope defensive positions dug into the ground. This allowed their tanks to hide the bulk of their body behind mounds of dirt, exposing only their turrets. While not effective against top attack munitions or direct hits from artillery, a vehicle defensive fighting position can dramatically increase survivability against front and defilade attacks. Given that the Ukrainians knew exactly where the Russians would attack, they were able to pre-position their tanks defensively to meet Russian armor head-on. This would be important as traditional military doctrine calls for a fight into the ambush in order to neutralize it. Ukrainian tanks would be a wall of solid steel that Russians broke against if they tried to push forward and would lend their own firepower to the killing of Russian armor. Next, because the Ukrainians had carefully created clear corridors free of mines, they were able to sight in their artillery extremely effectively onto predetermined firing points. Normally, artillery can be a bit of hit and miss, but when you know exactly where your enemy is going to be and you have good range information, even dumb non-precision artillery can be brought to bear with devastating precision. The Russians were facing a significant death trap, and the results speak for themselves. Upon sighting a Russian attack, the Ukrainian field commander in charge of the defense would call for artillery to prepare while dispatching his infantry into their ambush positions. Friendly tanks couldn't turn their engines on for fear of giving themselves away, either due to their thermal signature or the noise of their massive idling engines. Yet the tank engines needed to stay warm in order to quickly be fired up for combat, and thus the Ukrainians used kerosene-burning heaters next to their engines to keep the tanks ready to go at a moment's notice. Once the Russians figured out the extent of the defensive minefields, their armor would advance into the narrow corridors kept clear of mines. The defenders would allow the Russians to penetrate deep into their defensive sector before launching their ambush, replicating the exact same tactics they used north of Kyiv. With a single command, 
to battle, hell itself would break loose upon the Russians. First up were the Javelin and Stugna anti-tank teams. Each team would have different instructions assigned to them, with different teams responsible for striking at different parts of the Russian formation. The most critically important targets were the tanks in the front and rear of the formation, as eliminating those would create a bottleneck for any vehicles trying to either push through the ambush or retreat out of it. Next, the anti-tank teams would open up on the tanks in the body of the formation, sowing chaos and panic. Javelin missiles in top attack mode left no survivors, and Stugnas used against the thinner side armor of the Russian tanks rarely failed to destroy their targets. Just as the infantry unleashed their attacks, the hidden Ukrainian tanks, supplemented by a mobile reserve not sitting in prepared positions, would open fire on the head of the Russian formation, lending their own fire to the killing. Sometimes Ukrainian tanks would not even have a good line of sight to their targets, and instead use drone operators to sight in their attacks. This only added more confusion as unseen tanks opened up on the front rows of the Russian column while their own tanks struggled to find a target to shoot back at. Seconds later, artillery using predetermined kill zones would open up. Since the Ukrainians knew exactly where the Russians would be, there was little correction or adjustment needed. The simple command of to battle was enough. Gun crews simply had to start loading and firing rounds as fast as they could manage. As the vehicles began to move out of the designated killing field, drones would provide live correction for artillery. Most of the artillery being used was American M777s and French Caesar howitzers, and the effects were devastating. Tanks were largely able to shrug off non-direct artillery hits, but thinner infantry fighting vehicles would be shredded by the sheer volume of fire. Given the narrow avenues of approach, direct hits on tanks were also common, further adding to the carnage. Russian crews fleeing their damaged or destroyed vehicles would be cut down by the ranging artillery or machine gun fire from infantry on the flanks of the ambush. One Ukrainian commander even confirmed the use of HIMARS against a Russian column that had stopped. In modern war, sitting still is death, and precision HIMARS rockets devastated the entire Russian column, sending survivors fleeing. The slaughter was maximized thanks to the panic of Russian tank crews. Upon realizing they were caught in an ambush, Russian crews would try to retreat, running straight into the disabled or destroyed vehicles at the rear of the formation. In desperation, many tanks simply risked driving into the shoulders of the thin dirt roads that marked the safe approaches past the Ukrainian minefields. Inevitably, the vehicles would strike an anti-tank mine and either be destroyed or disabled, their crews having little chance of survival fleeing on foot from the veritable storm of metal raining down on them. However, for Russian vehicles that managed to withdraw from the battle, there was another deadly surprise waiting for them. Amongst one of its aid shipments, the United States sent Ukraine hundreds of specially modified 155mm artillery rounds. These special munitions consisted of a hollow shell inside of which were nine anti-tank mines with magnetic detonators. The Ukrainians would simply wait until the Russians had passed a certain point through the safe corridors and then blast the rear with these artillery-delivered anti-tank munitions. The results only added further carnage and chaos to the Russian effort. Pinned in on all sides, Russian crews lost their nerve and panicked, making them even easier targets. Targets. wasn't quite as easy as shooting fish in a barrel, but it was close enough. One thing became immediately clear to Ukrainian commanders in the aftermath of the first few successful ambushes. The Russians are running out of experienced tank crews and commanders both. One captured Russian tank commander turned out to be a medic who'd received a hasty crash course on commanding a tank. Given that learning to operate and command a tank takes months of specialized training, these soldiers had little chance of maneuvering effectively through the Ukrainian ambushes. However, the men that they were commanding were even greener than themselves, with many tank crews being made up of fresh conscripts that had at best brief familiarity training with their vehicles. Even more than the loss of their tanks and IFVs, this is a sign that the Russian war effort is in serious trouble, yet it hardly comes 
comes as a surprise. Russia's elite tank crews were all decimated during the spring of 2022 in the offensive for Kyiv. Those that survived were relocated to the east, where they faced off against the famously highly successful Ukrainian counteroffensive in the fall. The absolute best of Russia's best tankers, the 1st Guards Tank Army, was routed outside of Lyman to the north of Ukraine. This was the best equipped and best trained Russian tank force, meant to ride straight into the teeth of NATO's most formidable defenses and emerge victorious. What's curious though is that many of Ukraine's own tank crews are also green and inexperienced recruits, or they were when they were conscripted and joined voluntarily a year ago. In the battle for Volodar, many tank crews had simply learned their craft on the go, as Ukraine's most experienced tankers are currently in in Western Europe learning to operate Leopards and Abrams tanks. The fact that the rookie Ukrainian troops are surviving long enough to become veteran tankers and Russian crews are not is a clear indication of the direction of this war. As if it wasn't bad enough that Russian conscripts were dying or being wounded before becoming veterans, the Battle of Volodar also showed the Russian military was incapable of translating lessons from its past failures to new recruits. A big part of this problem, however, is the fact that the Russian military is made up of numerous organizations, and unlike the American military, it's not truly unified under a single command structure. Both the Russians and the Americans have utilized private military contractors or mercenaries in their military operations over the last two decades, but in Russia, Russia, everything is a competition, a competition for influence, resources, and prestige. This is especially true when nations or even Russia itself offer stake in businesses, such as natural resource extraction to the PMC that helps capture or liberate or just secure. Wagner PMC famously has stakes in multiple mines in Africa, earning an estimated $1 billion a year. One gold mine complex in the Central African Republic has been fortified by Wagner, including the placing of several truck-mounted anti-aircraft guns along strategic positions. Wagner has not allowed any UN investigation into its mining operations, which are rife with stories of human rights abuses. In fact, Wagner forces have shot down multiple UN drones attempting to gather visual intelligence on their mine complexes. Volodar is home to two very productive coal mines, potentially worth billions to whoever controls them. This is one of the biggest reasons that Russia wants the town so bad, having prioritized it as a target in the initial invasion and launching dozens of cruise missile attacks against its defenses. However, now Wagner, the Russian military, and Sergei Shoigu's own PMC Patriot are all in competition with each other to seize the town. For Shoigu and Wagner's Prigozhin, taking Volodar would add billions to their coffers. And it's in that spirit of competition that Russian troops fail to learn the lessons of the past, as the groups don't share information with each other. Even worse, they actually are motivated against sharing information or vital intelligence, as the failure of one entity means the gain of the other two. This is a recipe for absolute disaster, and the results are evident in Russia's staggering casualties. The Battle of Volodar has revealed just how decimated Russia's forces truly are. Intelligence shared by the British government has revealed that Russia has sent its vaunted 155th Naval Infantry Brigade into the fighting around Volodar. These Russian Marines are supposed to be amongst the toughest of the tough, and have historically throughout the fighting in Ukraine been sent to the most difficult assaults. Now it's believed that the 155th will have to undergo a third restaffing of its personnel due to the incredible losses incurred, meaning that this elite fighting unit will now be staffed almost entirely by Greenhorn conscripts. Russia, though, has apparently been making baffling decisions in manning its combat operations, as the 155th had allegedly not been deployed into combat together, but rather broken up into smaller units and integrated with other forces. This can be helpful in some scenarios, as there's strategic value to including some of your best-trained forces alongside Greenhorn forces, improving their own proficiency and raising morale, but this also makes a fighting unit less effective and is a serious gamble. 
one that Russia lost. What's truly bewildering about the battle for Volodar, though, is the stubbornness of the Russian forces, which itself is very well documented. In the US military, there's a saying, never reinforce failure. However, reinforcing failure is practically the way of war for Russia, and we mean this very literally. Time and again, Russian forces have stubbornly, outright, stupidly undertaken head-on assaults into the same well-prepared Ukrainian defenses despite catastrophic losses in previous attempts. In May of 2022, Russian forces attempted to cross the Seversky Donetsk River and met with disaster. Ukrainian artillery had sighted the Russian bridge crossings and lay in wait until the Russian vehicles began to roll over them. They allowed part of the formation to cross the river before opening fire, devastating the bridge, vehicles stuck on it, and vehicles from the other side waiting to cross. On the Ukrainian side, Russian forces found themselves cut off from retreat and decimated by waiting Ukrainian infantry and armor. Russia lost an estimated 70 vehicles in the crossing attempt, but they were about to reinforce failure in a truly bewildering way. Just a few miles away, Russian forces set up another river crossing outside of Bilohorivka. This too was observed by Ukraine, which was once more allowing a significant amount of Russian troops to cross the river before raining artillery down on the crossing. The effects were again catastrophic. But to the absolute amazement of Ukraine and its western allies, Russia attempted a crossing in the exact same spot three more times. Predictably, all the river crossings met with disaster, with an estimated two entire battalion tactical groups lost in the attempts to cross the river. Russia's strategic buffoonery even prompted the U.S. Army to troll Russia via its official Twitter account for U.S. Army forces in Europe and Africa. It's clear that Russia lacks the equipment, manpower, training, and even military expertise to have won in Volodar. But how should such an offensive have taken place if carried out by an army not fully and completely staffed by circus clowns? Russia's errors in its assault on Volodar are egregious to the point of comedy. First of all, it's a basic rule of war that you don't attack where your enemy wants you to attack, unless you've got a ridiculous level of firepower overmatch, which Russia does not and never had. So Russia's first error was attacking Volodar head-on. Knowing that Ukraine had deployed extensive minefields, Russian forces would have been better utilized achieving a breakthrough elsewhere and leaving behind enough firepower to fix Ukrainian defenders in place. It's impossible to mine an entire countryside, and simply maneuvering around such fixed defenses is the best way to defeat them. Russia, however, is allowing its military strategy to be directly influenced by a need for political wins, and thus reinforcing military failure starts to make some sense. If its military is being ground to a halt in one location, such as Bakhmut, then defeating the enemy in that location is more politically important than it is strategically important. Sadly, or luckily for Ukraine, these political victories come at a staggering military cost. However, if such an assault is required, Russia should have concentrated counter-battery artillery fire to shut down Ukrainian artillery, allowing it to move engineers into place to clear lanes through existing minefields. Close air support, a dangerous but necessary element, should have also been used to seek out and destroy Ukrainian artillery and defensive positions. Russia, however, has traditionally been very bad at ISR, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, and its aircraft and pilots are both largely unsuited for precision close air support. A severe lack of precision weapons only complicates matters. Russia has chosen to use its already low stock of precision munitions on civilian targets rather than military ones, with predictable results on the battlefield. Russia has the artillery advantage, but it's very bad at using it with precision. 
The key to victory would have been to suppress Ukrainian artillery with counter-battery fire, or better yet, eliminate it before an assault via precision strikes, made possible thanks to good recon and intelligence. Without artillery in the picture, or at least with its role greatly diminished, Russia would have been able to then support its tanks with dismounted infantry, whose job is to defend armored vehicles from anti-tank teams. Most importantly though, Russia simply failed to ever achieve critical mass in any of its advances during the three-week battle. This is a problem the Russian military has been facing in the last few months as its stockpile of tanks and armored vehicles dwindles. A concentrated assault with large numbers of forces would have been unsophisticated and within the reach of traditional Russian brute force tactics, but despite losses could have likely broken through Ukrainian defenses. Instead, the Russians chose to feed small assault groups into the Ukrainian death traps like appetizers, achieving nothing but turning even more of their armored forces into scrap metal. Ukraine did not win this victory without a scratch, though. It's not known how many tanks Ukraine lost in the battle. As for security purposes, Ukraine does not release lists of personnel or equipment losses. However, what is clear is that Volodar stands, while the Russian military is in retreat from the area. Whatever their losses, Ukraine doubtlessly inflicted many more on the Russians, making the battle for Volodar a strategic win for Ukraine. Similarly, the fighting for Solidar and Bakhmut might have ended in tactical defeats for Ukraine, but the staggering cost that the UAF inflicted on the Russians makes both overall strategic victories. Sometimes it's worth it to hold a losing defensive position if only to inflict catastrophic losses on your enemy and secure the overall victory. Just ask the 300 Spartans and their Greek allies who held the hot gates at Thermopylae against overwhelming Persian forces. Now go check out the dumb reason Russia is losing the war, or click this other video instead.